right, I think we're about ready to begin, right? I think so. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Um, would like to welcome you all to this session on Las Vegas history and cultural tourism um, in Las Vegas. Um, before we begin, I want to truly, on behalf of the panel, thank all of you diehard historical enthusiasts for coming out on the last day <laughs> at 9 a.m., the first session of the morning. We clearly expected to only be speaking to maybe three people, um, but uh, you've, you've uh, exceeded our expectations, so thank you very much for that. Um, one clarification, the original moderator for this panel was um, to be Jim McMichael from the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority. He is actually here. He is one of our panelists. However, I am your moderator today. I obviously am not Jim. And you're not a panelist. And I'm not on the panel, no. But my name is Cheryl Smith, and I am the specialty markets, uh, director of specialty market sales for the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority. Um, and all of my guests here today are also from Las Vegas. What I'd like to do um, is, because this session is being recorded for future, apparently historical purposes, <laughs> or reference, is just to remind you what session you are in. This, is, this session is called Betting on History and Culture in Las Vegas. And according to the program description, my panelists will be discussing how, over the past decade, uh, cultural institutions in Las Vegas have been strengthened by an increased awareness of and desire for community. The session will discuss strategies used by local institutions to reach out to the community to build a sense of place, a sense of history, and a sense of community. So what I'd like to do at this point is introduce you to all of the panelists uh, who will be speaking today. Um, and then what I would like to do is allow each of them about 10, 15 minutes or so. They each have a presentation about their uh, institution, their organization, and then we'll move into some planned questions that we had to discuss among the panelists and then open it up to all of you um, to also generate and ask the questions that you may have. Because the session is being recorded, I'm going to ask that you speak very loudly so we can hear your question. I will repeat the question into the microphone for purposes of audio recording, and then the panelists will respond. Any questions from anyone? Okay. So joining us this morning, I'm going to begin to the, my far right. Uh, the gentleman on the end is Aaron McAuliffe. He's the curator of exhibits at the Springs Preserve in Las Vegas. Next to him is Kelly Lux, who is archivist with the Las Vegas News Bureau. Then Alana Short, who is responsible for photographic collections and community outreach for the Nevada State Museum. And... Then we have Jim McMichael. See, there he is. <laughs> um, Jim McMichael is the Specialty Markets Manager with the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority. And to my immediate right is Nathan Harper, um, archaeologist also at the Springs Preserve. So I'd like to um, open the session by allowing each of the panelists to provide a brief description and their presentation about their organization. And then, as I said, we'll move into some um, organized questions and then open it up to all of you for questions. So, um, first, Jim, it's me. there you go. Good morning, everybody. I, we haven't even tested this, so if you can't hear me, raise your hand, but it looks like everyone can. So as Cheryl said, I'm Jim McMichael. I'm with the Las Vegas Convention of Visitor Authority, which is also a CVB, which is also a DMO. And our goal in the destination is basically to promote the destination, put heads in beds, and attract tourists, whether they're for leisure purposes or whether they're for attending a conference or an association. So you're like, why are you guys here? 
Well, one of the things that we've recognized, and I've been with the organization almost about six years. I've been in Vegas for 15 or 16 years now. Um, one of the things that they brought me on board for was to expand the cultural awareness of what the destination offers besides the Strip. Everyone comes to Vegas and they get stuck in that box that's called the Strip and it's two miles long and four blocks wide and no one ever leaves. But we have a wealth of other opportunities for visitors to see, enjoy, and experience the history of Las Vegas. You know, we're not a destination that has a, an amazing collection of works of art, whether they be contemporary or classics, that are hanging in a museum that are well curated for people to visit and enjoy, and it's the only place in the world you can see them. We blow everything up and start all over again every 10 years. However, we are a destination that curates our history. And we're going to go through a quick couple of examples of how we've worked with our museum partners to use that as a destination tool to attract tourists to Vegas. Because we always get, what's new in Vegas when we're traveling around? But the other question we get is, I would not, I'd have no interest in coming to Vegas. And we're here to make a reason for them to want to come to Vegas. So as the destination management organization, we're responsible for business development both on the leisure and the business side, and we do work in both the domestic and the international markets. And our goal is really to create partnerships and make connections. Um, when we have an association that's coming to town, we want to make sure that they get connected to resources within the community. When we have a group that's looking for a specific activity, and in this instance you'll see where we've worked with the Las Vegas Museum Alliance to take what was originally built as a host committee and have turned it into an actual alliance of museums that we continue to work with on a day-to-day -day basis. So on a sales and marketing side, the destination actually, we do have creative that's now coming out that is promoting non-strip activities. And here you see an example of what's at the airport. And we call this campaign the other side of Vegas because it's kind of backwards, it's inside out, and it makes you kind of think, hmm, what are they talking about? And, um, someone yesterday when I showed this said, oh, I just thought I was dyslexic. I, it does read that way. Um, but on our business side, we work with associations in trying to attract their business to come to Las Vegas. And as you guys know, in two years, you'll be sitting in uh, a hotel in Las Vegas enjoying it. And you won't have to go outside across the street to the convention center. Our hotels are small enough that we can put the whole entire convention in one building. Um, makes it convenient, but we will get you guys out in the community as well. But part of my job is to work with various associations and showcase the destination and have them consider why Vegas makes sense for their particular meeting. And we've had Western Museum Association, we've got Nevada Museums Association, which is actually being taking place in two weeks in Boulder City. Um, and then we have American Association, AASLH, which is coming to town in two years. Museums in Las Vegas, most people go, what? You don't have any museums. We have over 25 museums in Las Vegas. And as I mentioned, where they're not curated galleries of fantastic world-class art, they're historical pieces of Vegas that make up what our crazy town has become in the hundred plus years that we've been around. And each one of these has a very strong theme that carries through their exhibit and carries through what they are pitching as far as an experience to the local population and to our visitors. Some of these museums have been around for 20 plus years. Some of them are relatively new to the block. And we have specifically the Neon Museum, the Mob Museum and the Atomic Testing Museum have done extremely well with the visitor population. Very easy to understand what they're promoting, very, very Vegas history focused, and they're also very close to the Strip. But people are now starting to discover all these little nooks and crannies of other opportunities that they have when they come to the destination. 
Part of what the uh, impetus of us creating a cultural awareness with the destination and promoting it, using it as an opportunity to drive tourism, was the Western Museum Association, or sorry, the Las Vegas Museum Alliance was formed about five years ago, six years ago even, uh, when the Western Museum Association was looking for a destination and our museum partners decided let's band together and create a host committee to put together a pitch to consider Vegas as an opportunity. It was an ideal platform for us as a tourism organization to step in and work with the association go, don't disband just because the conference has already been here and happened. Let us work with you and the resources and tools that you guys have already brought together to create something bigger. And we've actually worked out with them and this is about the fourth year. We started out with the Las Vegas with a museum month. It was a little short after feedback. We figured out, eh, it's one month that didn't give us enough time to really get it out there. And then we've gone with Las Vegas Museum season, which runs from uh, May 1st to September 1st and promotes uh, special offers both for the local community, but more importantly for us, for the visitors who are coming to town to get out and see the destination. And we put all of this work together put the programming together and push it out through our resources as a destination management organization to get this in front of the visitors that are coming to Vegas or to get them to consider coming to Vegas. And you see a couple of examples of some of the museums that are in Vegas. The other piece that we really wrapped our hands around about three years ago, um, Nevada Preservation Foundation had their home in history day. It was an afternoon similar to modernism in Palm Springs that started 11 or 12 years ago where families who had taken historic homes and rebuilt them or renovated them opened them up for an afternoon where the, where the locals could go in and tour the homes. And I did it and thought, wow, this has potential, just like Modernism Week in Palm Springs, to become a destination event. So we sat down with them and said, one day doesn't make sense. Let's see how we can create the content and help you guys develop this and build it. And we have a community grant that we helped fund their efforts to promote the destination outside of Las Vegas, promote the weekend full of activities, and in four years this event's gone from 140 people to this past year they had a little over 800 people, and the best response is when we get emails from people saying, I couldn't make it this year, I have no interest in coming to Vegas, but I want to know what your dates are for next year, I want to be there. And we had a couple from Australia respond when, we, when they launched the ticket sales. They had just made their two-week vacation plans to go explore Hawaii, but they said, well, give us the dates for next year, we will be there. So when you get people who are hearing about this in a grassroots feel, all of a sudden, we're making people change their, their, their thoughts on Vegas, change their vacation thoughts of what the destination offers. And they come and they start on Friday and they have activities Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. This year, we're actually incorporating a half-day excursion out to Boulder City. And we're looking at being uh, into the 1,200 or 1,400 people. Doesn't sound like a lot when you have a city that brings in 43 million tourists a year, but we're actually reaching an audience that does not typically look at Vegas as a place where they would want to go. Sorry, I didn't hit. I didn't hit the next key. So, but just a couple of examples. They do the family. They do the family home tour, and we don't focus on modernism. Palm Springs is great at that. We focus on everything that's historical in Vegas. So we'll go to homes that are from the late 1930s all the way to homes that were built in the 1970s, but in that whole Vegas golden age. And they open the homes. There are some people that rent limos. So there's a group of six or eight people. They don't have to worry about parking. They just have a great time, enjoy some champagne, and halfway through the day, they're a little happier than they started. Um, but we actually incorporated you know, the ride bikes, the, the share bikes that we have in downtown, and they did a historical home tour of Palomino Estates and um, Rancho, Rancho Bel Air uh, in downtown Vegas this year. And I haven't been on a bike in probably 20 years. And after about five minutes, I was 
biking through the home tour. Uh, so it's actually a lot of fun, and there's a lot of different ways to explore the destination. But this gives you an idea of how us as a CVB or a destination management organization have worked with our museum partners to take their assets and use those as a selling tool to create an experience for Vegas that's completely unique and different than what the typical visitor thinks of the destination. Thank you, Jim. Um, and speaking of unique and different, our two next two panelists I'd like to invite up. They're going to give their presentation from over here um, are Kelly Lux and uh, Alana Short. Good morning. Is everybody awake? Are you excited? All right, so Ilana and I are going to briefly tell you about our institutions, and then we're going to look at our collaboration. Las Vegas lineup. It's our project. Again, I'm Kelly Lux. I'm the archivist with the Las Vegas News Bureau. The Las Vegas News Bureau began in 1947 because the hotel owners got together and said, let's market the destination. And they hired eight to 10 photojournalists who went around town and took photos of everything. Celebrities, on stage, backstage, locals getting married, lo tourists getting married. And they'd send those photos to their local newspaper to say, hey, Look what you can do in Las Vegas. Come out here to get married. Or they would take pictures of the charity events. We have a well-rounded photographic archive of Las Vegas history dating back to 1947. In 1992, the News Bureau joined the Las Vegas Convention Center, and we still have three full-time photographers and a video productions manager taking almost a half a million assets a year. Hello, everyone. So again, my name is Alana Short. I manage the photography collections as well as community and outreach for Nevada State Museum Las Vegas. Those of you in small museums understand that you can't just do one thing. And if you show an aptitude, you will then be allowed to continue with that. So that's how I ended up in outreach as well. We are a more traditional museum. It opened in 2011 in its current location at the Springs Preserve in Las Vegas. But the State Museum has been around since the early 1980s. We were in a smaller museum before moving into our new home several years ago. We have natural history collections, three-dimensional historical objects, a research library, a manuscript collection, as well as uh, the photography collections, which number about a million and a half images. So what is Las Vegas Lineup? It's a collaborative exhibit, which we have brought just a small portion of today as well. Um, the exhibit is really a three-fold exhibit, and it didn't start out that way. It's about a year and a half old, and it just kind of organically developed as we've gone along. But the first part is a traditional gallery panel exhibit, and it's currently on display for the second time at the Nevada State Museum Las Vegas. It will be up through the fall, and then it's moving to one of our federal courthouse buildings. It is about 72 numbered photographs. We provide labeled slips, as well as a locked ballot box type style box to go with the exhibit. And we ask visitors to take a look at the photographs and see if there's anyone that they recognize. The whole purpose of the exhibit is to try to help us put names uh, with faces and locations and dates with photographs that we have very little information about in our collections. In addition to the traditional panel exhibit, we also 
do group presentations much like this. We have a PowerPoint available to us at all times. If a Rotary Club or a Kiwanis Club, um, a photograph uh, aficionado club, anybody who wants to have us out, we will gladly go. And we bring our PowerPoint and we talk in a group setting much like this. And then finally, um, oh, we also bring our binders, which are here that we'll talk about a little bit later. And then finally, we are happy to piggyback onto other events. We freely admit to doing that. If there's a festival in town and there's an open table, we kind of beg uh, as a nonprofit if we can just set up and get some traction that way. So the whole point of Las Vegas lineup is making history happen. That's our hashtag. We want to go out into the community and get community members excited about their history and have them help us make their history, help us identify the people in the community, whether they're locals, whether they're celebrities. We are focusing on the 1960s right now. Last year, we focused on the 1950s. These are examples. The ballot box on the upper left, you can see the ballot box and slips. That's at the Nevada State Museum right now. That is our exhibit that's up. And you can see our traditional tabletop presentation where we have two six-foot tables. We bring photos that are identified for the people in the groups who don't know Las Vegas history but want to learn or are just interested to touch history. As you all know, people love touching history. Having that hands-on approach really draws in the community. We also bring about six cameras. Today, we've only brought three, but at the end of this, everybody is welcome to come up and touch them, to play with them, to look at them. We traditionally bring a light box with negatives so that we can explain to the kids what a camera and what a negative is. And then we also bring our unidentified binders, and that's what we push to people. When we do those presentations, we tell them, you didn't know it, but you came here to work. And we have them look at the binders, which are put together by subject. So if they know, if they worked with showgirls, if they worked in the industry, they can pick the showgirls binder. If they were a business person, they can pick the business binder. But that way, everybody can participate, whether they know Las Vegas history or not. So as we have continued these presentations, these are the most common questions that we get, and so we like to answer them up front. The first question is, how do we choose the photos that we use in our exhibits? And after a lot of talking, we started with the 1950s last year because we felt that that gave us the best opportunity to either reach people who were still alive during that time frame or had immediate family members that they would recognize in those photos. And it did actually work very well. We are focusing this year on the 1960s, much for the same reason. In fact, we have a lot of photos of children. We figure maybe now they've grown up and they would recognize themselves in the photographs as well. It's, it has happened. Um, and then how do we authenticate the identification guesses that we get? Uh, we do it very carefully. We take each and every guess that we realize as a real guess. You get kids that drop things in the ballot box all the time. But for authentic, real guesses, we do research those. We each have an extensive archive where we do have identified individuals, and we'll compare what we have against photos that we know are these people. We've also started trying to use Google facial recognition in some senses. And, but for some local people, we don't really have a way to 100% authenticate it, but we do try our best. Um, why do we want to identify the photos? 
How does it help our archives? Speaking to other historians, you understand that the more information you have about an object, the better you're able to preserve that object and keep it for future gener generations. So if we know that Mary Smith is in a photo, that goes in our Past Perfect database, and that's accessible for as long as we're using it. We do rotate the photos. We have now repeated gallery spaces with the State Museum. We're looking to expand a little bit further. And we want visitors to see new photos when they come. We don't want people to think that they've seen the exhibit once. They don't have to return and see the exhibit again. And where do we want to present? Anywhere that will take us. We. Um, are here, obviously, but we have spoken with Rotary groups, we're speaking with a Kiwanis group next week. People who've been in the Las Vegas community for a long time, that's really what we're after. But we welcome everyone. We've spoken at a newcomers group that was kind of a mix of new to Las Vegas people and old established uh, residents as well. Our gallery spaces, as we said, it's currently on display at the Nevada State Museum, Las Vegas. We've presented there um, the libraries. The Las Vegas libraries have great gallery spaces, and we've toured three libraries, and we're touring one more this year. And both of our courthouses have gallery areas where we've put the gallery form of the exhibit up, both at the federal courthouse and the U.S. courthouse. <coughs> the hands-on events. We have had great success, and it's one person hears us in the group, they belong to another organization, they pitch it to their organization, and the next thing we know, we have another booking. That's basically how it works. Our best hands-on is the group we're presenting to. We always have managed to get another hit in the audiences, somebody who's really excited to have us to go to their other group. And we've presented to a variety, as you can see, the Red Hot Hat Ladies Society, chapter of Las Vegas, and they, they're very insistent on that second T. <laughs> Public groups, the Friends of the Nevada State Museum, the Clark County Museum Guilds, we present to historical groups. Also, retirement communities, Sun City Anthem's a retirement community. We've went up there and made presentations. Next month, we're presenting to an assisted living and hospice care facility. So we're go around pretty much, as Ilana said, to anywhere and talk. And each and every location has had success. We've never went to a group and not had an identification. Upcoming presentations, the Kiwanis, the hospice care, and then we have an event in Las Vegas called First Friday. And it's a, all the artists get together in the downtown arts district, and there's a festival e each and every month. The Nevada Preservation Society in November is going to let us piggyback and put our booth in front of their facility. So these are just examples of the 1950s edition traditional panel exhibit. Um, if anybody has technical questions about how those photos are printed, please let us know at the end. We're happy to answer that. You want to continue? And then once we got enough identifications from the community, we wanted to thank them as well. So as the exhibit continued to travel, we created a panel that kind of acknowledged and thanked the community members for the identifications that they had given us. As of today, these are our current attendance numbers for our traditional speaking and hands-on binder exhibit. We have now reached 683 people. You guys will get added into our total numbers for our next presentation. 
And we are sitting at about 515 identifications. And uh, we also leave a sign-up sheet for exhibit notifications. We don't bombard them with spam. It's just when the exhibit goes to a new place or we're speaking at another place, we do send out an email, which I believe has helped uh, quite a bit as well. So the first time we did the gallery exhibit, it was at one of those local library galleries. And the news media picked up on it, and they were really excited. We were published in the Review Journal in Las Vegas, one of the largest newspapers. We even had a heading on the first page tagging us. People love history. People get excited to interact with history, to help make history happen. These are the different organizations. Just with that very, this is all on that first gallery exhibit that we toured, these numbers. We did the Desert Companion, a local publication, News 3 Today, the local TV stations, Sun City Anthem, which has their own little TV station as well. And the clipping services said that we reached 77 million people. Isn't that amazing? We did Fox 5 Live, we did interviews. That first month, Alana and I were all over the place being interviewed, and it was amazing because people had such interest in the community, and it generated more interest. And the total value, they say, um, our clipping service, for that publicity was $1.5 million for a library gallery exhibit, a community collaboration. That was really amazing. We were stunned when we saw that. And the library told us 98,000 people went through in the two months that it was opened at the library for our exhibit. We had in that single exhibit 147 identifications alone. And for me, when I get one person identified, because my, my archive is from one organization, if I get one person identified, I can go back in my archive and usually find more of that person. So for me, one identification can mean 20 identifications or 50 identifications. So to drum up this much publicity and interest was amazing for us, and it was hugely successful in our numbers. The more publicity we've had, the more identifications we have had with those exhibits. So this is just our page that we like to show that uh, <laughs> highlights <laughs> how uh, tall Kelly is. No. Um, this was, our <laughs> this was our first gallery exhibit at the Clark County Library, and uh, we were really excited, so we took a lot of photos. But that's us being interviewed for uh, Fox 5 broadcast, and it was a really early morning that we had to be there. So this just gives an example of what the traditional panel exhibit looks like in a gallery setting. So the last thing we want to show you, it is a four-minute video clip, and I know that's a bit long, but we decided it was important. Our exhibit has reached the community. It's brought community members in, and it's been a great collaboration, not only between our two institutions, but with the community itself. People feel like they're making a difference, and this exhibit, or this clip, is going to look at a couple that came to one of the gallery receptions. We met them. They have a very long history in Las Vegas. So we ended up doing an oral history with them. And then news, uh, the City Beat uh, TV, local news station, picked it up and looked at that interview. And then they looked at our exhibit, both the binder presentation 
and the formal gallery exhibit, and they did a nice little clip on it. And it really just kind of sums up the exhibit and the collaboration. So I hope you enjoy this. If you love to take a dive into Las Vegas history, there's an exhibit in town that will not only grab your interest, but may even allow you to solve a mystery about Las Vegas' past. Our Melissa Dedon explains. When it comes to Southern Nevada's history, Gail and Donna Andrus are the real experts. These two have been here since the 1920s and 30s. Well, you couldn't walk up Fremont Street with a, it would take you an hour because you knew everybody. You know, it was just, uh, it was a small town at that time. The couple, who have been married for 73 years, met while they both attended Las Vegas High. He sent me a note in class. And the note said, would you go out with a friend of mine? And I said, no, but I'd go out with you. And how I ever got to be that forward, I do not know, but I did. So, and that's when it began. And their detailed memories of Southern Nevada run deep. I think one of the neatest things was uh, when Gail was a kid, he worked as a pin boy. The bowling alley was on Fremont Street and he, uh, what they did was set the pins after the balls came down and his buddies would get up there and try to roll the ball so the pin would fly up to where he was sitting. It's these kinds of memories that allow the Andresses to help identify some people in these pictures. They knew the politicians, they knew the business people, they knew the entertainers. They knew Las Vegas' history because they lived it. And so they were able to look through our binders. And in a couple cases, he was like, that's my uncle. Or he knew who people were because his family helped build the city and her family helped build the city. The photos are part of the Las Vegas lineup on display currently at the Nevada State Museum. It's a combination of photos from the Las Vegas News Bureau and the Nevada State Museum. Thousands of the people in these vintage photos need to be identified. Everyone from celebrities to business owners. It's very possible somebody you know is in these photos. Archivist Kelly Lux was one of the masterminds behind this exhibit. As we are bringing our history, Las Vegas's history, into the community and asking community members to help preserve, help record, help make history happen. We bring photographs that don't have identifications. The people are not identified. In some cases, they may be one person out of four. If we know the location, we include that, or we ask people to also help us with the location. They want to put a name with a face Ilana Short with the Nevada State Museum says aside from the need for identification, it's a fun exhibit. I had no idea that it would be as popular as it has ended up being. Even if you don't know the people in the photograph, it's amazing just to be able to look at the old photographs and the clothes and the hairstyles and the celebrities. And it really gives you that feel of being back in old Las Vegas. So even if you can't identify a person, people just enjoy walking through the exhibit and getting that sense of place. And they've already experienced success. We've also had in our Clark County exhibit, a photograph of a local furniture store that was doing a television giveaway. And a man recognized his own father as one of the store owners and his father's business partner. We've had a picture of a showgirl and a woman recognized the woman in the middle. She said, that's my aunt, I know her. And she sent us photographs of her aunt so that we were able to verify, yes, that's her aunt. This duo also has a traveling exhibit. Xerox copies of the photos in these binders that they will gladly take to community events to show off. 
The Binder program has had nearly 200 identifications. They're hopeful the success of both the binders and the hanging exhibit will continue. We hope that we'll be able to find more physical locations to hang the exhibit, whether it's in community centers or um, any space that's public like that. But we will continue with our binder program. Any group that would like to have us out to speak, we're happy to bring the binders. This exhibit at the Nevada State Museum will be open until December 3rd. At that point, it'll be moved to the Sahara West Library, where it will be open until mid-February. For City Beat, I'm Melissa Dudan. If you'd like more information on the traveling exhibit, just head over to the Nevada State Museum's Facebook page. You can also call the museum at 702-486-5205. Please don't call us. <laughs> no. Um, so finally, we would like to just show you a little bit about what is on the table. These are the traditional binders that we bring to our exhibit. Kelly has one of identified photos, again, for people who are new to the area or don't want to look through the unidentified ones. And then we have an example of each of ours of an unidentified binder. Different categories. We have locals and celebrities and entertainers. And then we also have non-accessioned cameras that are in our personal collections that we bring out to these events. And these are just a few examples. Um, we do have some accession cameras at the Nevada State Museum that belong to local photographers. And sometimes if the history curator's in a good mood, she'll let me bring them to uh, events with me. And so, especially when we're doing large community events, I like to get those out. We do not allow those to be touched. They go in separate cases, but these are all hands-on. So when we're done today with questions and answers, we'll be here, so please feel free to come up and look at the binders and the cameras and to help identify the people in the unidentified photos because you're going to work today too. <laughs> Thank you, ladies. That's amazing. I'm gonna have to go back and look at some of those photos myself. <laughs> um, next, I'd like to introduce uh, Aaron McAuliffe. Um, or is it? We'll have Nathan go first. Oh, okay, all right, Nathan. <laughs> Nathan is the um, archeologist with the Springs Preserve. Good morning. Uh, my name is Nathan Harper. I'm the preserve archaeologist at the Springs Preserve, and I'm going to give you a little bit, uh, some deeper history uh, of Las Vegas. We, we were able to see the, the, the very famous time period, uh, the 1950s and 1960s, that everybody knows Las Vegas for, but Las Vegas has a much uh, deeper history uh, that includes um, water. You wouldn't expect in the middle of the Mojave Desert uh, there to be a solid source of water that put out a million and a half gallons of water a day that fed the early community of Las Vegas. Uh, we don't know exactly when the water started flowing out of the ground of what's known as the Las Vegas Springs or the Big Springs. Uh, anywhere from 10,000 to 12,000 years ago, it brought animals, things like uh, mammoth and mastodon and camel and American lion, uh, all which are found in fossil deposits on the north side of the city. Um, but also brought people. So indigenous peoples, we do have evidence of some Clovis Paleo-Indian activity going back about 12,000 years though uh, as well. So 
The water brought people there, but it also fed the growing city. And as the city started growing from its early days uh, in the 1920s and 1930s of a town of about 2,000 to 3,000 people, they needed to feed the city and feed the city with the water. And so the logical place to find that water was at the location of the springs. Uh, and so in the 1940s, 1930s, as, as the area was going through a drought, uh, they decided it was time to drill some wells and pump some of that water out to feed the city again. And so uh, on our site at the Springs Preserve, around the springs, you, you have uh, water well derricks and water procurement facilities dating back to the 1940s, 1920s, and uh, 1940s. Now the area around the springs was always a place to discover. If you talk to anybody who was born and raised in Las Vegas, they talk about how they used to go out and catch fish and frogs in the creeks and in the springs. They'd go out there and ride their bicycles. They'd go ride their horses. Uh, stories about blocking off and damming the creeks and flooding the area. Um, but it was also a place of, of research as well. You had people coming out and doing biological surveys, finding out what species and what animals were living out there, uh, as well as archaeological and uh, uh, excavations uh, there as well. We know in the 1950s that there was a biological uh, expedition that came out from UCLA and actually took samples of uh, fish and frogs from uh, the springs and the, and, and the streams there that they still have in their, pot, in their collections today at UCLA. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, a little bit later on. There we go. So the area, because of its sort of central location, three miles west of downtown Las Vegas, uh, was always under threat. People always looked at this lush green area in the middle of a dry, dusty desert and said, we want to live there. Uh, so you have large stands of cottonwoods, mesquites, meadows. Las Vegas means the meadows. This was the meadows. The, sp the area around the, the, the springs was the meadows. Um, but because it was a growing city, uh, it was always under pressure. Uh, some of the oldest uh, neighborhood, oldest, richest neighborhoods, you could say, are right around the springs. And they were always considered for more development. People were looking at it, they wanted to build a golf course out there, wanted to be a, build a resort out there. Uh, and over time, that, those concerns sort of passed away. But with the growing city, the highway system expanded. And uh, in the late 1990s, there was a big push to build the highway and was going to go right through the middle of the site. And uh, there was a very strong community group called the B Friends of Big Springs that had been working out there from the 1970s doing archaeological work. And they went to the city council, they went to the Nevada DOT and said, you can't do this because you're going to destroy the earliest history of life in the Las Vegas Valley. And the water district agreed and said, we need to do something with this place. And, and sort of an idea and concept was, what are we going to do? Are we going to wall it off and protect it and preserve it? Are we going to open it up and make it a Disneyland-style attraction? Or do we want to educate uh, the community? And in 1997, the Las Vegas Valley Water District, which owns the area of the springs, uh, agreed to a conceptual design and conceptual plan to develop the area as a cultural center and archaeological park and nature center. And so we started with the early sort of design charrettes, all of the um, uh, experts, archaeologists, wildlife biologists, facilities folks, all started getting together and working with uh, architects. Uh, Lucchese Galati, Tater Snipe Kimsey were some of the important ones we were working with. And also, the Springs Preserve Foundation was founded in uh, 1998 as a 501c3. So even though uh, the Springs Preserve opened in 2007, the work and the groundwork for the, for the Springs Preserve went all the way back to 1998. 
And um, when you're building something so large, 180 acres, uh, 70 acres of campus, of museums, botanical gardens, uh, playgrounds, uh, cafe gift shop that we all have, right? 110 acres of natural area in the back. This place was too important not to bring in the community and work closely with the community on that. So there was a series of community meetings. There was a community group uh, that was formed to meet uh, regularly to comment on uh, the designs and the concepts and the plans. And so a lot of these uh, working with the architects and working with the concepts, they'd bring these maps and bring these ideas and they would allow people to come in from the community and mark up those maps and put sticky notes and things on where we want to put things, what do we want to talk about, what is important to the people uh, in Las Vegas that they want to see developed in this place. It was a very collaborative, very open effort. And the big sort of reveal of that was uh, a large community meeting where you had this big wall uh, of information and as we said, the idea was, what well, are we going to wall it off? Not going to let anybody in there? Are we going to put roller coasters and, you know, Ferris wheels and things like that in there? Or are we going to find a middle way? And, and, and the middle way was, the, was where we went. Uh, you know, we talk about it sometimes being edutainment, right? Um, that was sort of where we, where, where we were aiming for. And we usually um, bring in most school groups. Uh, we have a very strong... Um, uh, what do you do when the, the kids go on a field trip? Thank you. <laughs> Not enough coffee. Uh, very, very strong field trip program. And um, uh, focusing on the children in the community was, was, was uh, very important for this uh, conceptual design. We had our groundbreaking in uh, 2005. Um, the water district uh, is, is a little bit different. We're sort of a quasi-governmental thing, and the Springs Preserve is sort of a subsidiary of the water district. So uh, the, the board of the water district is the county commission of Clark County. Uh, and so we have a lot of politicians very involved in the development, uh, as still today, uh, we work very closely with the local governments, the Clark County government, uh, to help uh, uh, drive uh, research and uh, community building at the Springs Preserve. So during the construction, which began in 2005 through 2007, one of the main things we wanted to talk about was sustainable living in the Mojave Desert. Uh, Las Vegas is going through massive growth uh, throughout the early 2000s. And uh, massive housing growth, uh, uh, infrastructure growth. Uh, it was the fastest growing city uh, in the world at the time. Uh, it was pretty incredible. And so we're trying to convince people to build sustainably uh, water, obviously, is, is, a, is a very limiting pressure that we have there in Las Vegas. And so we decided that, that the theme of sustainability, how we can build uh, without impacting our environment, without using so much water, was very important. So uh, many of our buildings are actually constructed out of straw bale. Uh, this is rice straw. has about a 50-year life on it. Uh, rice straw bales covered in plaster. Uh, very important. Butterfly roofs, cisterns, solar panels that, that get about, uh, get about two-thirds of our power from. Uh, in a year. Um, and uh, also, uh, we had a sustainability gallery, uh, botanical gardens based around xeriscape landscaping as well. And so we offer gardens classes to bring those people in and teach them how to live in the Mojave Desert because Las Vegas is bringing people from all over the world. It's a very transient population as well. So if we can teach them uh, how to live in the desert and teach them why they belong historically, it's a very important part of forming our community. 
Uh, we worked closely with community groups to start doing ecological restoration before uh, construction even started. In 2003, we started ecological restoration, restoring the landscape around this. It had been a working well field, and it had been essentially an industrial site with well pads placed around the property. And uh, we worked uh, closely with Boy Scouts in particular. Um, our restoration ecologist was a big uh, advocate for the Boy Scouts. And so we had lots of Eagle Scout projects, uh, replanting areas, and restoring the natural habitat of the area. So here we have a view of uh, what we call the Cienega. One of the, one of the threats uh, to the site and to the location was the construction of a flood detention basin. Uh, just like the highway was going to go right through the main part of the archaeological site, the flood detention basin was going to be placed right on top of the uh, archaeological site. And uh, in the late 1980s, these, the, this group, Friends of Big Spring, showed up to a city council meeting and said, you can't do this. You have to move this flood detention basin. And the mayor at the time said, we've done our work. We've done our surveys. There's nothing out there. Uh, the professor from UNLV that had done most of the archaeological work there in the 1970s came. And, and if you know him, he's a very quiet, very reserved guy. For him to get up in front of this group was, was a big, daunting task for him. And he said, I will take you out to the site, and I will show you where it all is. And there's a picture on the front page of the Las Vegas Sun from 1998. It's, it's, it's the professor and the mayor walking off across the site. Uh, and they come back 15 minutes later, and the mayor has a handful of artifacts and says, yes, we have to move this. So the flood detention basin, big open hole on our site, uh, we decided we were going to recreate uh, a natural sea in, in that area. And here it is uh, 10 years later. You know, some of the same sort of colors fall, fall foliage that you would see in some parts of New England. Maybe, maybe that's an exaggeration. We also still work to protect and conserve uh, ha uh, plants and wildlife on site. You see the, the yellow flower there is a, a bear paw poppy that is specific to the southwest uh, uh, in uh, Nevada, California, and Utah. We have a few populations of these bear paw poppy on site, and we're actually working right now to restore that habitat and interpret that site. Uh, we have desert tortoise on site as well. They're threatened and endangered. Uh, Clark County uh, Desert Conservation Program has a, has a program called Mojave Max. And similar to Punxsutawney Phil, did I say that right? Thank you. Uh, Punxsutawney Phil, uh, we have Mojave Max, and we do a emergence contest uh, for Mojave Max. And Mojave Max just recently moved uh, to the Springs Reserve from another location, so we're very proud to have uh, them there. And you see that uh, black bird there with the bright red eye and the crest, the black cardinal? That's called a phenopepla. And it has a very distinctive call. It sounds like somebody's whistling at you. So if you're out on site hiking around looking, you feel like you're turning around looking to see who's whistling at you. And they'll actually respond to you. You can do a call and response with them, too. This is very fantastic. And of course, near and dear to my heart is the, are the archaeological resources on site. We have uh, the oldest artifacts we have uh, proven go back about 5,000, 6,000 years. We do have a, a geologic formation on site that's called a spring mound. Rather than forming a cauldron pool of water flowing out into a creek, the water comes to the surface and soaks the ground around it. The wind blows in, the dirt collects, the plants flow, grow, and over time, the height of that mound is only controlled by the piezometric pressure, the artesian pressure pushing it up. There's about 40 to 50 of these spring mounds in the Las Vegas Valley, and any time they've excavated one of these springs mounds, they found mammoth, they found camel, and they found all of these prehistoric fauna. Now, we haven't done that on our spring mound. It's the largest spring mound in the valley, but you better believe I want to cut that thing open like a cake. <laughs> so here's a few numbers in the 10 years uh, that the Springs Preserve has been open. 180 acres 
uh, were platinum lead rated certified. This is a very important part of our sustainable uh, uh, program. Nine buildings on site being platinum, platinum lead certified. 2.3 million visitors over the course of two years. Just last year, we had over 3,000 visitors for the first time. Uh, we do about 30 to 40,000 school children a year as part of our um, field trip, thank you, field trip uh, program. And we very much uh, feel that if you get the kids in there, the kids will bring the parents back because some very exciting things that, that kids want to show their, their parents and their families. Uh, permanent exhibits, traveling exhibits, fine art exhibits. We have multiple uh, art galleries that we rotate through. Um, Nature Exchange is a very, uh, it's a really fun place where people can, uh, where kids and students can bring things that you find in nature and they get points for them. If they do a presentation or talk about them, they get extra points and then they can trade them for something else that is in the Nature Exchange. Right now we have a giant sea clam. I think, what is it, 500,000 points? At least. At least to get the giant, the giant sea clam. And nobody's, nobody's reached that, that level as of yet. Um, 128,000 plants in the Botanical Garden, 250 wildlife species. Uh, we've reintroduced some new habitats. Some, we've, uh, the, the creek stopped flowing in the late, in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Uh, but we've restored some ponds, some habitat ponds, to the footprints of the creeks there. And so it's incredible to see the explosion of life just bringing that much water back. We've signed into an agreement uh, with U.S. Fish and Wildlife to be a safe harbor for threatened and endangered species, fish species. And so we've repopulated some of our ponds with some threatened and endangered species, and we've also brought the frogs back uh, to the springs as well. And of course, we're still a working uh, well field. We still have reservoirs, working pumps, working wells on site. And you're going to hear from Aaron a little bit later about our waterwork exhibit that talks about how the water district moves water around the valley and some of our history exhibits as well. And we've become sort of a heart of the community. We do about 12 to 14 community events a year, almost 75,000 plus attendees. Uh, Black History Month, we've, we've done a, a sort of an Asian harvest sort of festival as well. And probably our most successful one has become our Dia de Muertos. Over three days, we offer uh, spaces for people to bring uh, altars and ofrendas. And just they, it's become a really, really incredible event. And it's, a, it's very popular. We're very proud of that as well. So, now you're going to get a chance to uh, hear from Aaron to talk a little bit about uh, some of our newest exhibits and some of the directions we're going to be going in the future. Thank you. Hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Aaron McCullough. I'm the curator of exhibits at the Springs Preserve. Um, as Nathan mentioned, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the history exhibits specific uh, to our site. Um, very, very briefly, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Waterworks exhibit, just to kind of uh, piggyback on some things that Nathan was talking about. He mentioned some of the historic water resources. Uh, so a few years ago, we decided to build a permanent exhibit that looks at where we get our water from, how we move it now, how we moved it historically, uh, water conservation, um, and, and just really quickly to dispel a common myth about Las Vegas. A lot of people think um, you're in the desert, you're this big city, you guys have all these fountains, waste, 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 waste. Well, here's a little reckoning for you. We recycle every little bit of our water, everything. Nothing is wasted. We are actually the poster child for a lot of places around the world on how to do water conservation right. We bring delegations in from the Middle East, from uh, Asia, from South America. I cannot tell you how many tours I have to lead uh, a year for these delegations that want to see what we're doing and how we're doing it. So um, 
we really are at the forefront of water conservation. And um, uh, it, 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 I do realize the kind of little cognitive dissonance with being in the, uh, the driest desert in North America, but we are quite proud of that. Okay, so um, this is the exhibit I was just mentioning. Um, very recently, um, of course, those are familiar with the area Lake Mead, as you know, the water level is dropping. We've been in a, a drought for about 20 years now. Um, so very recently, Las Vegas, to protect the future of its water resources, basically built a new straw down into Lake Mead, one that gets a little bit deeper. Um, so when mandatory water restrictions kick in with the continued drought, which we expect that they will, we will still be able to get water, and in other parts of the country that do rely on Lake Mead, they will not. Um, so we, again, are planning for the future with these giant infrastructure projects. And so I kind of talked about everything here. Um, that ring you see there, that's actually part of the new tunnel that was built to uh, build the uh, giant drill that uh, helped build the straw, as I mentioned. These are <laughs> non-technical terms, but I think for our purposes today, they work. Um, and then we got it, and it actually is built in a, uh, overlooking a pump station which services uh, part of the valley. I didn't include a photo of that, but um, behind um, the wall to the right there, you could actually look down into the pump station and see some of the working uh, pumps. So here are some more exhibits. We do have a global water connection to that. Um, one of our funders was the One Drop Foundation, which um, used, was basically the uh, nonprofit that was associated with Cirque du Soleil. Um, before they were sold, um, they're still in operation. And uh, we also look at everything including um, water quality. So um, I'm gonna kind of move over to our, our, our newest history exhibit. We do have permanent exhibits that look at the people of the springs from archeology, span as Nathan mentioned, um, the land auction in Las Vegas, who settled it, the Hoover Dam, um, early settlers, pioneers, uh, at the Mormon Trail. Pony Express, that type of thing. But um, not, I would say, uh, just before the preserve opened, there were some historic railroad cottages. And these historic railroad cottages were slated for demolition. And so um, the decision was made to move them to the preserve, and then we sat on them for, for a while, not quite sure what to do with them. We had just opened, the recession hit, we are in this kind of, oh boy, how's this gonna work out? You know, we, we hadn't really quite gotten our footing yet. So uh, Nathan was working with us at the time, and he spearheaded a project to do the historic uh, preservation of those cottages. And the interpretation that we decided to focus on from about 1900 to about 1920. The city itself was established in 1905. And so this is the historic railroad cottage uh, communi community. Um, we had the uh, San Pedro, Los Angeles, and Salt Lake Railroad, which ran from Salt Lake City to um, uh, Los Angeles, and basically, Las Vegas is about halfway through, and we had the water which was needed for the steam engines. So the railroad chose Las Vegas early on to build a um, kind of a maintenance yard, uh, and uh, they needed to bring in some housing for some of their mid-level employees. And so those are the historic homes that we were talking about here. Got some historic photos there. We kind of ran through them real quick. Um, can you go back one real quick, Nathan? So um, on the end there, we have um, Senator Clark, um, he was um, a senator from Montana. Um, we commonly like to refer to, just as a little editorial here, corrupt politicians. You have not ever seen a politician more corrupt than Senator Clark. I encourage you to Google him after this program and you will be shocked. Okay. All right, so here's a view of the neighborhood. Um, the uh, 
small homes kind of in the background, those are the cottages that uh, we were talking about that we saved uh, from demolition, just four of them. And so, as I mentioned, they're housing for the, uh, we call them SPLASL, uh, SPLA and SL Railroad um, employees. And you see the lots there. They tended to be quite uh, narrow and long, a little bit different from what I think most people would focus on. We had a number of groups that helped us conserve them. And again, Nathan was the spearhead, uh, spearhead of that program. So we did actually have access to the architectural plans. They were craftsman-style homes, cement block. Uh, very distinct roof line. Um, we looked at the blueprints and we put in trim colors, uh, moldings, floor plans, kitchen layouts. They had two different layouts, generally speaking, and we um, often modified, to be sure, and we consulted with the National Park Service on the historic preservation. And Nathan, chime in here if, you, if I'm missing something. So here we are just moving the cottages. It was a very narrow move from our, we call our outback area along our service road, which has become a, a trail, a paved trail for us. A few trees needed to be trimmed, but other than that, it was a little close, we made it through. Um, so here is the completed restoration. Um, one great thing is we actually, um, there were some uh, fundraising drives to get plants. And so we actually knew what kind of plants were planted uh, in the yards. So we uh, made sure as much as possible to include those species. So here is our, our kind of our cottage street. We spent a lot of time and effort on it and we only had money to interpret the interior of one of the cottages at the time. And there we are with a historic photo just kind of on top of it. All right, so here we have the interior of the cottage that we uh, opened initially. This is the an interpretation showing the main room. Now, we did have to make some modifications. Um, this doorway in the um, upper uh, right-hand corner there, that was widened up for wheelchairs, as well as the back door out to the porch, and as well as a ramp to, to bring it in. The bedrooms, however, we did not do that. We just kind of made them little step into type of thing. A wheelchair can move in and back right out um, because we didn't want to really mess with the uh, architectural integrity too much of the, of the, the rooms. Um, also, uh, because of that, um, because of circulation issues, we couldn't put, for example, a kitchen table in the middle of the room. So we just opted not to include a table. Now, um, Nathan likes to say um, mo every, most things were local, but um, I do believe the boiler came from Maine or Connecticut? Maine. Maine. The stove came from Connecticut. And the stove came from a Connecticut, so we did our best. Um, and that actually brings up a really good point. Now, because Las Vegas has had several booms and busts, a lot of the folks, of course, have moved on. We didn't have, for the most part, access to artifacts that were specific to our time and place. So we primarily picked up period antiques, and we also knew because of the, 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 the size of the area, folks would be interacting in a way that you know, typically you wouldn't encourage in a house museum. But we decided, well, we want to make this in, in such that over time, if we have to replace the couch, we'll replace it with a different period antique. Um, so that's the kitchen there. And then we have a couple bedrooms. We've kind of interpreted one as the parents' room, one is the nursery and sewing room, and another one is the, the kids' room, the other kids. So 
Okay, we have these wonderful houses, uh, one of which is open to the public. We spend a lot of time and money on them. They're about four and a half blocks from the rest of the site. And on a hot day when it's a, a balmy or a chilly 115, um, it's going to be hard to lure people out there. So I don't know how it worked, but we were able to convince the powers that be to spend a lot more money to build a whole town site. And for that, um, you see some renderings uh, on, on the bottom there. Uh, we kind of... Uh, it's certainly a faux town site. Um, these buildings were not always in direct relationship proximity to each other, but we make no bones, I mean, we're, we're very upfront about that. We let people know this represents an early Las Vegas town site. We're not trying to, to pass it off as otherwise. Um, and so we started off with a train depot. We do have a trackless train, so it seemed like a good way to get people out to the site. Um, it is, uh, we have a replica ticket office combination um, break room, freight area. We've got a newsstand in there. There's a Telegraph Interactive. Ultimately, we base the building on the actual mission-style uh, depot. And it's slightly smaller so that it didn't overwhelm the rest of the site. And we have exhibits on the east and west sides, so including a historic railroad pipe. You can go ahead and go through them, Nathan. Um, and then you see the historic uh, pipe that was used to move water. We get to the idea of other types of transportation with some Model T artifacts. We talk about the various folks who worked on the railroad, including this gentleman named Nat Love. Great story. I encourage you to Google him if you get a chance. And then we have the interior of that um, break room slash uh, telegraph office. Um, we also uh, did a rep uh, reproduction of sorts of the Lincoln Hotel. Uh, currently on Main Street, uh, Main Street, we have the Victory Hotel, um, and there were some folks who approached us to move it. It was just not cost-effective to move. Um, it would have blown our budget by two just to move and restore this building. But we did build a kind of a reproduction version of it. And I do have to point out, it's one of my favorite, fo favorite photos. You'll notice there is a street light I don't know how or why this happened, going through the porch. And that street light actually hung out over on Main Street. Now, unfortunately or fortunately, that street light is no longer there. We, we noticed about a year ago that it's gone. Um, it, it was just kind of a head scratcher. The hotel is closed uh, at this point. It's kind of um, derelict. But it's at a part of the city um, downtown which is experiencing this giant re renaissance. And I expect within a couple years there will be something, something else there. So we created a, a waiting room. Uh, there's a step-in bedroom kind of as though um, a uh, traveling uh, businessman is staying there. Um, we have some trompe l'oeil paintings to kind of allude to a second floor with a stairwell. Um, and again, a few little interactive guest books in there. This is one of the buildings that doesn't have air conditioning, so we expected the stay time to be a little bit lower in there, less so. It's right next to the Majestic Theater. Now, this is the outdoor version of the Majestic Theater. During, uh, in, it used to be indoors. Um, keep in mind the time and place, stuffy. People didn't bathe nearly as often as we do today. Um, they would also smoke in theaters. So during the summertime, I got really, really hot. So they would move outside to their air dome, of which we have a photo there. Air dome is a screen outside. Uh, and uh, of course, when the monsoon rains would come, they'd quickly grab everything and run back inside. So in it, uh, over there rather, we've created um, uh, this is a, not quite finished. The benches aren't there yet. We've also. Um, had movie poster reproductions. We play 
um, old films in there, um, period films, as well as an interactive um, uh, motion picture camera that folks can play with. We can also do um, events and programs there. So there's one of those reproductions. We also talk about um, the Hazards of Helen films. Um, they are quick films that look at the, um, I'm gonna move this very quickly, I'm realizing we're running low on time here. Uh, and uh, she was an action film star. She was not the damsel in distress, she did her own stunts. So we got a picture of her jumping from a moving car onto a moving train. All right, we also have the Arizona Club, which was our premier gambling hall saloon with a little bit of bordello activity in the back going on. Um, we have an interactive uh, uh, full bar in there. We can do events. Um, and then we also have an interactive um, roulette table in there and a player piano. Roulette table is a lot of fun. Kids get to play it because they can't normally do that, of course, yet. And then we have a mercantile, which is the only building that we have that is not based on an actual business. And that's because we only had two photos of an exterior tent, and so we based it on the interior of another kind of dry goods store in the area. Ours is not nearly as full as that historic photo that you saw. We've got a variety of foodstuffs. We've got activities with, his, with historic uh, registers, uh, uh, weighing of dry goods, et cetera. And finally, we have the First State Bank, which has historic photographs and descriptions. We have a bank uh, uh, assay interactive there for visitors, and this is actually based on a historic building, which in itself was based on the idea of looking at the Bank of England to encourage um, faith and permanence in the city of Las Vegas. Go ahead and go through that. And attendance has spiked, um, and I think everything else I have mentioned. So in the interest of time, I'll turn it back over to you. Awesome. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> exactly. In the interest of time, we have about 10 more minutes left. If it's all right with the panel, rather than going through the questions that um, we had originally discussed, is it all right if I open up to the audience? Okay. I'd like to give all of you an opportunity to ask the panel questions. Yes, sir. Okay, and keep in mind I need to re repeat the question because we are being recorded, so go ahead, uh, sir. Uh, Kelly and Ilana, you mentioned re reaching out to the community, and I think Nathan mentioned uh, the variety of uh, communities, demographic variety of the communities. So do you have any particular uh, uh, outreach to Asian and Pacific Island, Islander communities, especially so the question, just for the record, is a question to the photographic archival project um, and whether or not we have done research to the Asian Pacific and Hawaiian communities. So I'll speak just to Las Vegas lineup. Um, we are using historic photos from both of our collections from the 1950s and 60s. And we just don't have those photos in our collections to begin with. That doesn't mean we don't want them. I, in particular, work for a collecting institution. That is an ongoing discussion between my director and I. We live in a city that is 30% Hispanic population. I am the only person on staff who speaks Spanish. We have no signage in Spanish. And if we can't even start there, then I'm not sure how we continue to reach out to other communities in the area. But that is something that I take on personally in that I would like to have more objects coming in from 
communities and cultures that we don't necessarily have represented at this time. Thank you. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. So the question, again, for the record is, given that Las Vegas is so transient with so many visitors, um, yeah. is any of the photographic archival research occurring outside of the Las Vegas area? We both really want to answer yes. this question. <laughs> we both have an answer. What we have discovered is that, yes, a lot of people in the photographs probably do not live in Las Vegas. Especially in my collections, I have one particular photographer who his estate has donated about 600,000 photographs. And while he worked in Las Vegas locally, he also photographed conventions, business openings, casino openings, gatherings, and those definitely have people in them who do not live in Las Vegas. We have not expanded beyond the local community at this time because so many of our photographs are community-based. But I'll let Kelly explain a little more. We really want to. But we have had tourists. When we were at the Clark County Mob Month, we piggybacked and we had our table set up. We had a lady who worked in PR New York now, but she used to live in Las Vegas. And she went through and identified like 10 people. She knew people. She used to live there. She's come back as a tourist and went to the event. So we try to go to a mixture of events, whether they're community-based or if we can go to the Springs Preserve for one of their events where they get tourists in and they can look at our binders as well. And that's why we have the cameras, that's why we have the identified photos, is because it draws both tourists and locals alike. And the hands-on approach draws them in. Having the hands-on cameras brings them there and then they look at those binders. But we've had success with tourists identifying photos. We also really want to visit the uh, home for elderly actors and actresses in Los Angeles. I think that would give us a really good chance of getting some photos identified. We just need that connection. <laughs> Other questions? Yes, absolutely, Aaron. Just to piggyback on, this is Aaron for the, for the yes. audio Sorry. portion of this. Um, I just want to piggyback on the question of, of dealing, of working with um, other communities, uh, different different groups. Um, you know, uh, I, for whatever reason, early on the Springs Preserve did not go bilingual um, on its exhibit. So for us now, any new project that we're doing, at the very least, all of our main message panels are are, are bilingual. Any of the uh, interactive things, pull, touch, you know, that type of thing. Um, I'll be working on a project the next year or so to try and uh, get everything. Um, uh, translated at least into Spanish, probably for an app or, or something else. Uh, you know, we do have a, a major, all, nearly, if not completely, majority minority population at this point, um, and it's not just Spanish. We have a lot of uh, speakers of Tagalog. Um, the Mandarin community is expanding significantly. We're a real international city, and um, we do have a lot of events that target these various groups, and we've made quite a few inroads in that, and they do see us as their community place, but I do agree, we, do, we can do a little bit better with that. And I'm going to go back to your question because here this we I talked earlier about how we make connections, and you're talking about taking this exhibit outside of the outside of our 
boundaries. And I just made a note that with Nevada Preservation Foundation being in Palm Springs at Modernism Week, how cool would it be to take that exhibit to Modernism Week to promote our modernism, our Palm Springs, our, our Heritage Festival, but also to get people to interact with our history. With that said, um, I'd like to close, I guess, with one last question and feel free, panel, to jump in at any time. And that is, you've slightly started to talk about various hurdles that you've um, encountered. What do you, for your institution, feel is the greatest hurdle that you have yet to overcome? Yeah. Obviously, identifying photographs is one of them. <laughs> As always, it comes down to money. Uh, funding, how long can we keep this exhibit going? So. We have whole panels um, in our PowerPoint that we didn't include, but for the most part, this is a really cheap exhibit to put on. It is photos that are already in our archives. The Las Vegas News Bureau does the printing. It, it's not a huge uh, drain on our resources, but in order to expand it and bring it out into further communities to expand the exhibit, to include more hands-on things, then it comes down to money. And one of the greatest hurdles for our project was in the middle of our project, my director decided that our hands-on educational cameras could no longer be brought out into the community, just like that. And so we were faced with looking at our project without cameras. And the cameras are what draw people in when we have a table, when we have a booth with 20 other booths, the cameras is what people see first and the blinking Las Vegas lights, which are all welcome to take. And so we decided that we talked about it and we decided that it was necessary. So I actually went out and bought replica cameras from my institution, so replicas of what our photographers actually used with my own money so that we could continue this project with its successes. Go ahead, you're, you're oh. you, you were born in Las Vegas, so. Okay, quick. So the question is, if a historic hotel on the Strip were it still, if it had still existed, would it be preserved today? There's one. Tropicana. Tropicana. And still Flamingo. There. Flamingo. It was, Flamingo was one of the original hotels. Again, money. Yeah. The Tropicana yeah. still has original elements from, mm -hmm. the Tropicana still has original elements from when it opened. Yeah, they actually took one of the original uh, bungalow wings. Remember, they were they were all low-rise, three, four-story buildings, and they've actually got one that's kind of mothballed. It's been preserved, but they took one of their wings and they actually converted it into beach bungalows. So they're uh, upgraded one-bedroom villas that have a walk-out balcony with your own private jacuzzi and a gate that will takes you right out into the pool area. So they've actually preserved part of and the Tiffany stained glass that was installed above the casino is still there. The other point that I would add to that is one of the ways that Las Vegas has tried to preserve some of its hotel history, given that we have imploded so many buildings and built mega resorts in place of them, um, has also been to preserve the neon signs from many of those hotels. So the neon sign museum, many of the signage is working um, and still lights up, but many of them um, are no longer able to be um, lit up, but they are still preserved in, in a museum setting. So. 
Um, with that, um, I believe we've reached our time. So what I'd like to do, I've been asked as moderator to make a few housekeeping uh, business reminders. The first is for all of our guests, attendees here today. Um, your, the conference is encouraging you to propose um, ideas for the 2019 annual meeting in Philadelphia next year. Um, also, when you came in, you were handed a blue evaluation form. Um, the panelists and myself would appreciate if you take the time to um, rate, um, give, you, give us your opinions. It will help us better understand uh, what we can do better. Um, thirdly, um, because we are all from Las Vegas, and this conference will be in Las Vegas in 2020, um, I encourage you to stick around and visit with any of the panelists. Feel free to ask any additional questions. I'm sure they would be willing to um, spend some time with you after the session has ended. Um, and if you have additional ideas or thoughts, please feel free to share. Um, our history in Las Vegas is a little bit newer than many other cities in the United States, so we welcome, um, or at least the pres preservation of that history. I guess our, our archaeologist would argue we have a long history. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm sure they would welcome any ideas that you might have. So I thank you again for joining us this morning and uh, wish you a pleasant rest of your day. Thank you.